Dicks, dicks, dicks. Dicks, 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 dicks. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is January 13th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Does Dex, 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 Dexamethasone Help with Renal Colic? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Kevin Sternberg. He is a urologist and endourologist with a focus on the medical and surgical management of kidney stone disease. He did his medical school and residency training at the University of Buffalo and endourology fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Welcome back to the SGEM, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. Well, you were you were on the SGEM Extra episode three years ago. Boy, time flies in COVID times, <laughs> but um, three years ago, and and it was a great episode because it brought together three disciplines. You had the urologists, the radiologists, the emergency medicine physicians, and we all got together to discuss ultrasound versus CT scans for suspected renal colic. I'm wondering, has there been a shift in practice because of this joint publication put out in the three journals with regards to should you be doing an ultrasound or CT scan first? So one of my favorite topics to talk about, which uh, def- definitely uh, I could go forever, but uh, I think it's a really interesting question. The project was, as you said, this multidisciplinary effort to recommend best imaging practices for patients presenting to the, to the ED with suspected renal colic. And as you said, the main goal was really to limit the use of CT imaging in favor of ultrasound whenever appropriate. I think our group did an excellent job describing scenarios where CT imaging may not be needed in clinical situations where the likelihood of an uncomplicated kidney stone was high, while the likelihood of a potential dangerous alternative diagnosis was low. So this made a lot of sense, but I'm not sure how much impact it actually had on clinical practice as I think about it more and more. I was in an area where ultrasound was strongly supported, but I don't think this is the case in many places. And as I'm sure you have discussed many times on here, changing the culture of practice is incredibly difficult. I think ER providers and Definitely urologists, I'll speak for us, and patients often want definitive diagnoses with these, you know, following management implications, and you can get that with a CT scan. And I think often these groups favor having that information over the downsides of CT, which of course are radiation exposure, cost, and dealing with incidental findings. Thinking more about it, I think that this was even heightened during the pandemic because patients coming in and you didn't want them to get some form of diagnostic evaluation and then not know for sure and then have them come back. You really wanted an answer. Yeah, there really is a, um, a knowledge gap or a knowledge translation gap. It takes over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. And, you know, we talked about this three years ago that ultrasound in certain circumstances was appropriate. But you know what? The uh, you know you're allowed to throw shade on your own specialty. So you know when it comes to emergency medicine, the alphabet is A B C T. <laughs> you get the CT, and you know it's quick. You know you don't need contrast. Uh, they've got all these new protocols with low dose radiation. I'm working in Canada, so the cost thing isn't as sort of 
as much of an issue. I can see how you would gravitate towards getting a CT rather than, you know, waiting for an ultrasound and waiting for the ultrasound read and all those types of things, especially with flow in the departments these days. So I can see how there might be multiple barriers to implementing, you know, there's the research, there's the evidence, but whether it actually translates into practice is a whole nother thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I know urologists are certainly uh, on board with you, uh, ER providers there for sure. Um, we we need our CT scans for kidney stones. Otherwise, we're completely lost. And if you <laughs> think about it, it, it tells you, is it a stone? Where's the stone? How big is the stone? So these are important things. But on the other hand, we know that most stones are going to pass on their own. But I think that that, uh, that translation doesn't always uh, get us where we need to be. Well, it is, it is referred to as the donut of truth at times. <laughs> like but that. let's get on with a case here. What, what did you bring in today? All right. So we have a 38-year-old uh, female who's presenting to the emergency department with a five-hour history of acute onset left flank pain. The pain comes in waves, it radiates to her left groin, and it is associated with nausea and vomiting. So it's a clinical picture I think we've all seen over and over again. Um, she's had some darkening of her urine, but doesn't have any dysuria. There's no fever, or vaginal discharge, and that's what we got. Well, let's give some background information because we have looked at many different therapies to treat renal colic on the SGEM, and that has included things like, hey, give him a fluid bolus or a diuretic. How about some tamsulosin, a nice alpha blocker, or acupuncture? And we even did a show on lidocaine. So I, I think that, um, you know, looking at the, the bottom line of these different treatment options that, uh, again, you've addressed, uh, I think we've seen that you really don't need to push IV fluids, um, oral or IV fluids, or use diuretics to, to pass kidney stones. There's no real benefit to that. The medical expulsive therapy with alpha blockers, uh, tamsulosin, that's a huge topic that even though you've done it a few times, I'm sure you could do it 10 more times. But um, it really has shown that you don't need to do that for smaller stones. And for larger stones, it really depends on their location. So if you really look at the data um, and you're interpreting that study or those studies favorably, then you would consider alpha blockers for distal stones greater than five millimeters. Acupuncture was not seen to be superior to morphine for renal colic, and the evidence does not support the use of lidocaine either. So along comes glucocorticoids or steroids, and we know that they act as anti-inflammatories and immunosuppressants, anti-plurifative drugs, and even have some vasoconstrictive effects. So it's reasonable to hypothesize that adding a long-acting glucocorticoid like dexamethasone, hey, that may help with pain and vomiting associated with the passing of a kidney stone and even potentially decrease opioid use. So what's the clinical question we're going to try to address in today's show? Should we be adding dexamethasone to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications for the management of suspected acute renal colic? And the reference? The reference is Rossi et al., dexamethasone and Catorolac, compared with Catorolac alone in acute renal colic, a randomized clinical trial. And this was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2022. Let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? So these were patients presenting to the emergency department with flank pain and presumed renal colic. And there was a 
long, and I mean long list of exclusions, and I'll list those in the show notes. How about the intervention? So it was the addition of intravenous dexamethasone, eight milligrams IV to the Ketorolac. Yeah. And the Ketorolac dose, I just want to point it out. They, they use 30 milligrams as their standard dose. And, uh, you know, we've had information from Dr. Sergei Motov, who is a pain guru, and we've covered some episodes on that issue of Ketorolac. And there are ceiling effects to NSAIDs. And the study done by Dr. Motov, I think the show was called Dancing on the Ceiling because of the ceiling effect. And you don't really need to go to 30 milligrams. There's a, there's a ceiling effect. You can get by with 10 or 15 milligrams of Ketorolac. And the comparison group was? Ketorolac, 30 milligrams IV. All right. And let's run through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome? So they were using the visual analog scale. So a change in pain on the 10 centimeter uh, visual analog scale at 30 minutes and at 60 minutes. Are you suggesting there was two primary? Okay, we'll get to that later. How about the <laughs> secondary outcomes? So these are important too, the grade of vomiting, uh, so nausea, vomiting, the need for antiemetics, and the need for opioids. And what type of study was this? This was a single-centered, triple-blind, randomized clinical trial out of Iran. All right, so the author's conclusions were, quote, in comparison with patients who had just received Ketorolac, adding dexamethasone provided improved pain control after 30 minutes of therapy, end of quote. All right, for randomized uh, control trials, we have 12 quality checklist questions. Let's run through those now. First question we're interested in is, are these emergency department patients? Yes. Do you think they were adequately randomized? Yes, I think so. They used permuted block randomization sequence. Did they conceal the process of randomization? Yes. And did they analyze the patients into the groups which they were randomized? In other words, an intention to treat analysis? Yes. And were the patients recruited consecutively? We think so, although it wasn't explicitly stated. Uh, do you think both groups were similar at baseline with regards to prognostic factors? Yes, I think so. And were all participants, that means the patients, the clinicians, the outcome assessors, were they all unaware of what group patients were assigned to? So the, the study says it was a double-blinded study, but if you look back in the, uh, the records about the study, it was a triple-blinded. Um, so I think we're unsure exactly, but I, I think overall that we were, uh, we can say that they were unaware of their group allocations. And were all the patients treated equally except for the intervention? That's a good question, which we will certainly address later, but I, I think for now we can say we're not sure. All right. Was the follow-up complete? Yes. Do you think they considered all patient important outcomes? I don't think so. Do you think the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Again, I don't think so. And then the final question is about financial conflicts of interest. Did we see any of those? We did not. All right, let's go through the results. They recruited 120 participants based on their power calculation. They had 60 in each group. The mean age was just under 40 years of age, 70% were male, and 42% reported some vomiting. What was the key result, Kevin? So the key result here was that dexamethasone plus ketorolac was statistically superior to ketorolac alone for pain control 
at 30 minutes, but not at 60 minutes in adults with suspected acute renal colic. Yeah, that primary outcome, they had two of them. They had one at 30 minutes and one at 60 minutes. And they were looking at a change in pain from baseline using that 10 centimeter visual analog score. What were the actual numbers at 30 minutes? So at 30 minutes in the intervention group, there is a decrease of five on the scale versus a decrease of three in the control group for a p-value of 0.014. Yeah, so that was statistically significant. Um, Whether it was clinically significant, that's another question. And then uh, at 60 minutes, though, they didn't find a statistical significance. Nope. It was not statistically significant there. And it was uh, specifically, it was a decrease of seven in the intervention group versus five in the control group. All right. And let's go through the secondary outcomes. There were three listed in the manuscript. The first one was grade of vomiting. Which they found no statistical difference. And how about the need for an antiemetic drug? So there they found a difference, 12% versus 28%. And for opioids? Also, they found a statistical significance there at 35% versus 58%. Yeah, and both of those favored the treatment with dexamethasone. All right, now let's talk a little nerdy here. We've got five points to go through. You're the guest. You're the urologist. You're the expert. I'm going to give you the first nerdy point. All right. Well, we're going to go back to my favorite topic of, uh, of imaging, which we started with. But, you know, the first question the urologist has here is, did these patients even have stones? You know, we look at what they said here. So they, they did lay out their diagnostic criteria. They used um, blood cell count and the urinary assay. Uh, and then they used imaging, which they said was ultrasound or CT. If you think about it, though, in a study where you're really saying that these patients have acute renal colic, I would need more definitive imaging to know that. So whether it's a CT showing me the stone in the ureter, which would be definitive, or an ultrasound with hydronephrosis and the appropriate clinical correlations. There are other questions we don't really know. Did everyone get imaging? If they did, what was the incidence of hydronephrosis? We we don't know the stone characteristics. We don't know where these stones were. Were they in the, the proximal, the mid, or were they down low by the bladder? And how big were they? We also know that flank pain can be for many reasons. So without this definitive diagnosis, who knows what else this could have been? Could it have been musculoskeletal pain? So I'm not really sure the, um, the title saying that this is, you know, patients with acute renal colic can be accurately stated. So you would make a friendly amendment then maybe to the authors to say, can you change your title to suspected acute renal colic? That would have been my first recommendation as a reviewer for here, as the urologist, of course. All right. Well, my first point is I'm going to go back to my, one of my favorite, the two primary outcomes, because we know there can be only one primary outcome. Um, why did they have two primary outcomes? Why did they, you know, I mean, it's fine to measure at 30 minutes and 60 minutes. But prime means one. And so why didn't they say, okay, it's going to be 30 minutes or it's going to be 60 minutes? Why would the results change after another 30 minutes? And is this clinically relevant anyway? Do patients care if they're better at 30 minutes, but not at 60 minutes? Or maybe they care if they're better with their pain for a longer duration. You know, dexamethasone is a long acting drug. (laughs) And, you know, so anyways, the two primary outcomes is my second nerdy point. All right. I'm up on the third nerdy point. 
So we're looking at the, um, the utility of the visual analog scale. So certainly this is a scale that's used in the literature and we can report it, but I'm not sure, in my opinion, it's the most appropriate primary outcome, at least from a clinical standpoint. So is the drop in the, the, the score, is that, is that going to change what I do clinically? So first of all, I think this is a subjective outcome measure. And I think that potentially more important outcomes, at least from the urologist's perspective, is what's ultimately going to happen to these patients? Do they need an intervention? We know that patients with poorly controlled pain who we cannot get them controlled in the ER often are taken for some sort of endoscopic intervention, whether it's stent placement or stone removal. Um, and then I think another really important topic, which is my second favorite topic, is the need for opioids. You know, how many of these patients are ultimately going to fail this approach and then subsequently need opioids and then with the sequelae of that, which we could go on forever. Yeah, I think it's an important point you raise because, you know, in evidence-based medicine, we have these three pillars. We have the the relevant literature, uh, you know, the clinical aspect, which you're talking about clinical judgment and what concerns you clinically, and then asking the patients, of course, about their preferences. Sure, people want to be in less pain. I think that's a very important patient-oriented outcome, and uh, it's very subjective as well. But if you ask the patients, well, how about, you know, long-term pain? How about if you need to go for a procedure? How, how about if you have to go to the OR? How long does it take you to pass those stones? What's the most important thing to the patient? And the easiest way to figure that out, ask them. <laughs> but I'm spitballing here. All right. Fourth point, secondary outcomes. In the trial registry, they had only one secondary outcome. Ooh, one. Um, and it was grade of vomiting. And yet the publication added two additional secondary outcomes, which I think are reasonable. I mean, the need for an antiemetic and the need for opioids. But it's really unclear when these were added and if they were done post hoc. In addition, there was no information on adverse events. We do not know if adding dexamethasone to ketorolac causes an increase the same or a decreased number of adverse events. And it's really hard to put things in the proper context as a clinician without knowing the potential harms. All right. So I think those are excellent points. To bring up our, our last nerdy point today, we're going to talk about adjunct medications, which we hinted at earlier, but they really didn't give us any information who was provided any adjunct medications. Uh, specifically, again, like we talked about, were, were alpha blockers used? So did these patients get tamsulosin or did they not? Now, talking about alpha blockers, you know, typically we talk about, are these going to help a patient pass a stone? But we also, as urologists, often sort of in the backgrounds talk about, well, we're using these medications. Could they also be impacting the patient's renal colic and are in help with their pain management. You know, specifically where we get that from is we know that alpha blockers are something that's useful and recommended for ureteral stent pain, and that's a similar sort of colicky type pain. So I think that the lack of knowledge of whether or not these medications were given and whether they were given equally is important. So I think at the end of the day, it's unclear whether these patients were treated equally, except for the addition of the dexamethasone compared to the standard dose of Cotorolac. Thank <laughs> you.
All right, that's enough nerdy talk, Kevin. Now we're going to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So we think that the authors are overinterpreting their evidence. Without the additional information on how accurate the diagnosis is, the stone size and location, the rate of adverse events, and the use of adjunct medications, I think we should consider this preliminary data and hypothesis generating. So what would you give for an SGEM bottom line? So my bottom line, I think, or our bottom line should be, we, we really can't recommend the addition of dexamethasone to, to Ketorolac in the treatment of adult patients with suspected renal colic. And of course, that doesn't mean a clinician couldn't decide to use dexamethasone. We just don't have a lot of evidence to you know make that recommendation and say, hey, we think you should be using dexamethasone. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, it's hypothesis generating. It's uh, preliminary data. Let's see some more research done on this. Let's control for some of those things that we mentioned and see if dexamethasone does work. We're not claiming it doesn't work. We're just saying, hmm, all right, that's interesting, um, but I'm going to need more to go on before I change my clinical practice. Agreed. I'm going to do the case resolution. You no, know, usually I have the guests do it, but you know, you're the urologist. I'm not calling you down to manage this patient when I first see them. I'm going to be doing the initial management and stuff. So I'm going to do the case resolution. And so in this case, um, I would provide the patient with 15 milligrams of IV Ketorolac because it's easier to drop than 10 for the nurses. At least that's what they tell me because the bottles come in 30. So it's easier to pull up 15 than 10. And the patient, her pain improves. Uh, you get the CT scan back and it shows a four millimeter stone at the UVJ. So it's right close to the bladder. You're optimistic that it's going to be passed soon. There's no signs of hydronephrosis. And so you discharge her home with a prescription for Ketorolac. You ask her to strain her urine because this is the first time she's had a stone. You give her good instructions on when to return. And you refer the patient to your friendly neighborhood urologist for an outpatient consult. But I'd like to get your wisdom, Kevin. How do you think we should clinically uh, apply this information? Because I alluded to how I would apply it, but what do you think? First, I hope she's using her strainer because <laughs> those never get used appropriately. And in addition to having the stone for analysis, uh, it's nice to know that they actually passed their stone and we don't need to get any more Im imaging, but that's, that's a whole nother story. So clinical application for me I will not be suggesting dexamethasone for patients presenting with suspected acute renal colic. On the other hand, I fully support the use of Ketorolac or NSAIDs in general as first line, and this is certainly supported in the literature. And I really do applaud this group in the consistency of this approach. It really seems like patients come in with suspected renal colic, and this is what they're doing. They're, they're getting NSAIDs and other supportive care, and they're not going straight to opioids. So I think that's great. All right. And so because I'll be discharging the patient, I'm not calling you up and having you come down and evaluate this patient who's getting better and has a small stone, no hydro, and is going to be going home. So this is what I would potentially say at the bedside. Uh, you have a small kidney stone. And what I mean by small is less than five millimeters. Most people will be able to pass a stone of this size. And so we're going to give you a prescription for some pain medicine. It's going to be the same pain medicine we gave you here that seemed to have worked well. If your pain gets worse, though, or, or you can't hold anything down because you're vomiting, you develop a fever, or you're worried in, an, in, in any way, just please come back to the emergency department and we'll reevaluate things. 
I have made a referral for you to see our local urologist who's on call today, and their office will be contacting you in the next few days about an appointment. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Tim Kolosianek. He knew that Elder and Hertz are credited for publishing the first description of M-mode echocardiography in 1953. Kevin, did you bring us a question? I have one, which would be appropriate. All right. In what year was dexamethasone first synthesized by Philip Showalter Hench? Well, if you know that answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Hey, Kevin. It's great collaborating with you again. It was great. I love joining you, and I hopefully will be able to do this again in the future. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for another renal colic paper because I think people are still doing research in this area. But until that next episode, I want to ask you to read the SGEM tagline. All right. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.